What I really want people to pick up on is the through line that we have that as slavery dies, we see the rise of Jim Crow. And as Jim Crow dies in the 60s, we see the rise of the prison industrial complex. If you really want to be accurate, you have to start with Lyndon Johnson. I know he's a hero to a lot of liberal people because he signed in the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act. But as he was doing that, he was declaring war on poverty. He was declaring war on crime, which started the snowball of massively overfunded and overpowered police state. Welcome to the first episode of Expiration Date Podcast. Expiration Date is an access point for people to understand and experience the modern U.S. criminal justice system. I'm your host, Michelle. And I'm David. Thanks for joining us in this journey as we sift through mountains of information and misinformation to learn how we are all affected by the criminal system. Michelle, will you share with us some of your thoughts before we move to the details of Liddell's case and your research? Yeah, I think a lot of people that consider themselves Democrats think that historically their party has been supportive of marginalized people. And I feel like that a lot of Republicans think that the politicians are very focused on safety. And I don't think that you can reasonably look at the history of incarceration in America without blame falling heavily on both parties. The Republicans and and Democrats are not as different as they pretend to be. I wanted people to understand that maybe the reason that they think some of the things that they think and hold some of the beliefs that they hold is because they've been manipulated. When I came across Liddell Lee's story in late 2019, I thought it was exceptional. I became aware of Mr. Lee when a local story published an update about the April 2017 statewide effort to execute eight inmates with drugs that would expire at the end of the month. They were telling readers that the Jacksonville Police Department had finally agreed to test the DNA in Liddell's case. They were doing this because the ACLU and the Innocence Project, along with the Lee family, had been suing them for years. From the day he was arrested to the day he died, Lee always insisted that he did not commit this crime and that he was innocent. We're asking the city of Jacksonville to allow us test DNA and fingerprint evidence from the murder for which our brother was convicted and executed. His case was a perfect storm of factors that undermine the fairness and accuracy in capital cases. There's only one problem. The state had executed Liddell in 2017. He was executed without testing the DNA in his case, DNA that could have exonerated him. I clicked on the email. It informed me that there were major flaws in his case. The evidence against him was shaky at best and sinister at worst. His mother and father had abused him. He had severe trauma. He was suffering from mental illness. The only witnesses to this crime were small children and drug addicts that were high at the time. The judge and the prosecuting attorney were having an affair. The defense attorney was high during his trial. He was arrested and rushed through the system. Black people were pushed from the jury. His final appeals were rushed because the drugs were running out of time. This brought up an even bigger issue to me. What is the overall legality of the entire concept of arbitrarily executing people 
because drugs were going to expire? This was madness. How had this not been a bigger story? So like any reasonable middle-class white woman, I googled how to start a true crime podcast. I found a Reddit that had an entire sub devoted just to this question. Some really reasonable sounding advice was, before you gather information, look into the basic ethics of investigative journalism. I learned a lot of people from the journalism world find Serial, one of my favorite true crime podcasts, to be exploitative. I learned that it is important not to laser focus, but to look for broader context. So I dug into the other three men that shared Liddell's fate and the four that only had to face it. I was aghast. There were so many problems with each of their cases. I looked into how and why the media might not have already reported on this. My focus broadened even more as I skimmed hundreds of articles, read dozens of books, and listened to months and months of podcasts. Each new horror was a blow. Liddell's case was absolutely exceptional, but not at all how I thought. I realized that Liddell was lucky to have his physical evidence checked in the first place. I saw that the quote-unquote Negro hair that placed him at the scene was better than them saying, well, one of y'all did it. He was lucky that his mother would get up on a stand and admit to a sea of white, angry faces that she had hit her son because that was all she knew how to do. I realized he was lucky to have a diagnosis in the first place. I know now that the Reese children are lucky because they have some paltry semblance of justice. I realized he was lucky to go to trial at all. Both sides of the aisle got to have a day in court because the only thing more traumatizing than relitigating is no litigation at all. Liddell was lucky that the assistant prosecuting attorney was only sleeping with the judge and not hiding evidence with him. He was lucky enough to have a defense attorney that would sign an affidavit stating that he was abusing drugs and absolutely ruin his reputation to try to save Liddell's life. He was lucky it was old drugs and not a noose. He was lucky that they killed him first. So he didn't have to watch men he'd lived with for years walk down the hall to their death while waiting on his own. Witnesses were allowed into the room at around 11 o'clock. At a quarter to 11, the curtain on the death chamber was revealed to see that the process had begun. A lethal injection was administered at 11.44 p.m. and the coroner pronounced Liddell Lee dead at 11.56 p.m. this 20th day of April. At least the state had made sure he made it to be middle-aged. Yes, Liddell's story was exceptional. It was exceptional that they told his story at all. There are millions and millions of people suffering violence at the hands of this absurd system that we call justice. I saw this case and thought, this is absolutely horrifying. Our system is broken. And the more I learned, the more I realized that this case was better than the norm. I learned that the system was not broken. It was built this way. When I learned that they were finally testing the DNA, I thought it was a tragedy. I realized that it was in fact a windfall. I had originally planned on waiting to release the details of this podcast when I thought we might have executed an innocent man. I was the fool because I thought the system would care if he was innocent. Okay, so this is going to take a sharp turn, basically. Uh, the entire podcast is me telling you, the audience, and David, 
my fellow podcaster, stuff that I googled or heard on a podcast or read in an article or read in a book. So buckle up, we're gonna go fast. If you're a fan of true crime podcasts and we get some pleasure out of listening to crazy atypical crime scenarios that you never think you could be a part of, stop listening now. This will ruin it for you. Each episode, we're going to take a look into some major issues that plague the criminal legal system of the United States. Did you notice I said didn't say justice system? That was intentional. Not to be inflammatory, just to be accurate. A lot of people ask me, how did they get away with this? Um, how did they? How did they do what they did to him? How is this legal? And the short answer is... It's legal because it is. Um, They have a ton of arbitrary power. No one can really stop them. And things that are on the books illegal sometimes don't translate to illegal in practice in court, especially in our system. So this first episode, the title is An Innocent Man. I knew this was going to be the title of the first episode when I googled how to start a true crime podcast. And it is so disgusting to me now. I have no idea if Liddell was innocent. But more importantly, the state doesn't either. And they killed him anyway. But to understand this, you need some context. We're going to go over a brief history of the death penalty in the United States, and then a brief history of the explosion of the carceral state. Why in that order? Because that's the order in which I learned about them. Anyway, the death penalty. So, the use and popularity of the death penalty in the United States has waxed and waned for the last 43 some odd years. Referred to interchangeably in this podcast as capital punishment, the history is complex and dense. Basically, in 1972 the Supreme Court decided that the death penalty constituted a cruel and unusual punishment, but they disagreed on why. This led to a shaky ban of the death penalty. Hysteria ensued. Another Supreme Court decision brought back the death penalty in 1976, and we started executing people again in January of 1977. The last 43 years of capital punishment are referred to as the modern era of the death penalty. So when people say the modern era of the death penalty, this is what they're talking about. It's a little misleading because it wants you to take the short time period from 1967 to 1976 when we didn't execute people to do a lot of heavy lifting to separate it from the indiscriminate murder of black people before 1967. You have to remember this was deep in the civil rights era. Dr. King was assassinated in 1968, just to give you some context. This time period, there was a massive shift in public perception of Jim Crow. And since 1976, the popularity and commission of the death penalty has waxed and waned. There have been nearly 8,000 people sentenced to die. 1,500 people have been executed. 170 have been exonerated. Death Penalty Information Center, DPIC, reports that multiple studies have found racial disparities at every level of the process, from policing to arrest to jury selection to jury verdicts to sentencing. I have now realized that the death penalty is only the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the criminal legal system. These are the cases that we hear about. And by we, I mean middle-class white Americans. Poor black and brown people already know this. They know that the criminal legal system is a mini-legged monster that perpetuates so much violence. And like the crime documentary series Scooby-Doo, when you take the mask off the monster, most of the time it's an old white man trying to make money. I stole that from Twitter. This system is designed to terrorize people, to rob them of agency, and to decimate them. This system is overwhelmingly prejudiced. There's a massive disproportionate effect on poor and brown people, and a massive disproportionate amount of power in the hands of white people that run the system. Again, I am not saying this to be inflammatory. I'm just trying to be accurate. Okay. So, that was a brief history of the death penalty. I would love for you to press pause and go read Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson if you've not already done that. It's a powerful story of a lawyer that is fighting the death penalty. He has been so for decades. It's a great entry point into the issue um, that surround the death penalty. 
Um, it was my entry point into this. Um, I had just finished the book before I heard about Liddell. And it's a good brief history. There are good people fighting the death penalty, but like I said, it's only the tip. We will leave our very brief history with a quote from Brian Stevenson himself. The death penalty is not about whether people deserve to die for the crimes they commit. The real question of capital punishment in this country is, do we deserve to kill? Okay, let's pull back and look at the politics before we get into the details of the criminal legal system. I want you to understand something. Democrats and Republicans in power work in tandem to expand the prison population. If you vote Republican because you think they value life, they don't. If you vote for Democrats because you think that they want to help people, they don't. Republicans and Democrats have done this together. It starts with LBJ. Yes, my friends, Lyndon B. Johnson. We had to remove slavery. Then we had Jim Crow. And then in the 60s, we see the flood of power going to the police state. As he was signing the Voting Rights Act, he's declaring a war on poverty that led to gutted and shallow social programs. As he was signing the Civil Rights Act, he was reassuring America by declaring a war on crime that would dump a massive amount of resources and power to law enforcement. He solidified the myth that criminality was part of black culture and that the solution was police. Then we get Richard Nixon. He made Johnson spending on crime look small. He was the law and order candidate. He wanted us to be tough on crime. This led to a drastic expansion of prisons, police, law enforcement, and punishment. Skip a few, then we get to Reagan. He solidified that criminals were criminals because they were evil, and the only appropriate way for government to deal with them is to lock them up. He started the war on drugs and drastically increased policing and surveillance. We come to the Clinton administration that coined the term super predator and saw the passing of a disastrous crime bill written by none other than Joe Biden. While he was gutting welfare, he was funding increasing incarceration. Then we get to the second Bush administration that drove us further into surveillance and mass incarceration. Each administration sold the idea that better policing was more policing, better crime control was more punishment for crime. Jump ahead today. They tell us we are so divided. You are asking me to vote for the administration that is letting kids rot in cages at the border or the administration that built those cages. They're asking you to vote for the man that gleefully called for the execution of children that were falsely accused of a crime or a man that wrote the crime bill that put thousands of black and brown kids behind bars for crack cocaine while he was cleaning up his son's own cocaine possession. Okay, so we've looked at a brief history of the death penalty, a brief history of the politics that got us here. Let's look at where we are today. So when I say the carceral state or the prison industrial complex, I'm talking about people in prison, jail, on parole, or on probation. For the purposes of this podcast, we're going to ignore youth detention centers, immigration detention, tribal jails, and foreign detention. The United States currently has 1.2 million people locked up in prison and yearly places about six to seven million people in jails. These people are behind bars. There are approximately 900,000 people on parole and 3.6 million people on probation. The second group is under community surveillance. Every level of this system is designed to disproportionately affect poor people and black and brown people. Every level of this system is a mix of local governments and corporations that want to keep people in the system. 
The major takeaways I want you to get from this episode is a brief history of the death penalty, a brief history of the politics that got us here, and some of the raw data about where we are now. In future episodes, we're going to go into detail about major issues, but it's important that you have some context. We're going to do full episodes on the lethal injection, trial and appeals, school-to-prison pipelines, police violence, mental illness in and out of prison, discrimination in our laws based on race and poverty, women in prison, the new iteration of slavery, and we're going to try to follow the money. Before I started doing this research, I didn't know that 60% of the people that we have locked up have not been convicted of a crime. Hmm. And that there are millions and millions and millions of Americans that are affected by this. And it is violence. It's awful. Why are they locked up without being convicted? Uh, Because they can't afford to pay their way out. And that's that's how our whole system is set up. You get arrested. You get arraigned. The prosecutor and the judge decide what to do, sometimes without your attorney (laughs) present. 97% of crimes in America, this is hundreds of millions of cases, 97% of them are resolved with a plea deal. Hmm. Offer you, before you get, so if you take the plea deal, you don't get a trial. Like, I don't think people understand that. You don't get an attorney, you don't get a trial, and you can go home if you can afford it. Like, Hmm. if you get, like, before you even get to the plea deal, like, if you get arrested, then you get arraigned and charged, they either set bail Mm-hmm. Or they don't. And in most cases, they set bail. And if you can afford to pay bail, you go home. And if you can't afford to pay bail, you stay in jail. And that should tell every, if every single American could realize that the entire basis of our criminal justice system is whether you have enough money to get out of it or not. Like, and that's at every level. That's not just bail. Like, do you have the money to hire a good lawyer that will, that knows the judge and knows the prosecuting attorney. They have dinner together. Their kids go to school together. Do you have money to hire that guy? Or do you have to go with the public defender who doesn't have a good relationship with any of them? Uh, because he's constantly, he's the only one that's antagonistic of them. I don't know that I want to offer any solutions. Okay. Because number one, I'm not in a position that I could enact change on that level. And I think that we as Americans, especially when confronted with uncomfortable things, have a tendency to say, well, what are you going to do about it? Mm-hmm. And you don't have to grieve. You don't have to sit think about it. these families. You don't have to sit in it. You can be like, well, I'm fixing it. I'm, I'm, I've thought of a solution. And I feel like we excuse ourselves a lot with that. And we excuse our actions because we're working on a conclusion. Yeah. And excuse the actions of others. We say, well, so either they have a tendency to say, well, system is so big, I can't change it. Or we have a tendency to say, well, this is a solution. We need to change. We need to change this and then forget about it. When I want you to listen to what we're saying, listen to these people's issues and sit with it and be uncomfortable. Yeah. I want, I want you to be uncomfortable. I want you to be scared. I want you to be sad because this is terrible. (laughs) It's terrible. Join us next episode as we dive into bail bonds, jails and prisons, and how people are held. We're going to go through the minutia of what happens after you have contact with police. 
rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, and hey, if you know anything about any of these issues and you would like to be on the podcast, email me. Because I literally just Google things. That's it. Find the email in the show notes. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks.